You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Murder in a small town is something that is supposed to be rare. However, when it does happen, generally the cases do not remain open for too long because in a setting like that, almost everyone knows one another and there are clues, eyewitnesses, and mistakes. This week, we're going to look at a case, though, that took place in Orangeville, Ontario in 2010. At that time, the population was roughly 27,000 people. Now, 12 years later, sadly, this case remains open. To this day, very little information is known as to what happened, including the details surrounding how a young nurse died. Today, we will look at what details there are on the case in the hopes of helping to find some answers. Hello, and welcome to episode 58 of Gone But Never Forgotten, the unsolved murder case of nurse Sonia Verashin. To GBNF. After two straight episodes away from Canada, we are returning to Ontario for this week's episode to cover a case that has been unsolved to this day, even though it is considered to be one of the top unsolved cases in the province. That's right. There's not a whole lot of information on this case, but that is why we are going to try our hand at helping to get the information out there on another platform in hopes that someone that knows what happened here can step up to the plate and bring some closure for everyone involved. In the past, we have covered a nurse that has killed. This week, we are sadly going to cover the case of a nurse who was murdered. Let's get right to it. Sonia Varashin grew up in a very tight-knit Italian-Canadian family. She was the oldest daughter of Attilio Varashin, who emigrated from Italy to Canada, and Michelle Varashin, who was a French-Canadian. The family settled in the greater Toronto area, where Attilio would work as a plumber. Attilio and Michelle would tragically face the death of the firstborn child, a son named Vivian, very early in his life. He was still an infant at the time of his death, and he sadly passed away in a car accident. Sonia would be the eldest of the children that would come after that tragic loss. She was born in 1968, and she had two younger siblings, a brother named Viv and a sister named Nadia. Sonia has been described as a happy-go-lucky little girl who loved to dance, loved to laugh, and loved to be the center of attention. 
Following her passion for dance, she took dance lessons and would later find another passion in skiing. Michelle would later describe her daughter as a ray of sunshine for everyone that was lucky enough to know her. Much like most of us as we start to grow up, Sonia wasn't quite certain what she wanted to do with her life. So rather than putting all of her eggs in one basket, Sonia tried a few different things. She started out as selling wedding dresses in a small shop in Toronto because she had always had a keen eye and keen interest in fashion. Much like my co-host here, she would even move across the country, her to Alberta, for a time in search perhaps of who exactly she was and what she wanted to do. In the end, she decided to work with children as she has always loved kids. She would start to follow her skills and her love for kids into pediatric nursing. Sonia would graduate from Humber College in Toronto with full honors, and she would go on to work at a children's hospital in Toronto, where she would work in the cancer ward and in the burn unit. That takes a special kind of soul and special kind of heart, that's for sure. Loving and working with kids is certainly one thing, But it takes a really special and incredible person to work with them and care for them when they are in those two particular units at the hospital. You know, it's really sad. Often we talk about how after someone is murdered, you only hear the best things about them. But the reality is that it is often people like this that fall victim. People who are kind people who have bleeding hearts, and people who will literally do anything for anyone. They are the people that these asshats, like whoever did this, target. That certainly is a thing. You're not wrong. Michelle says that the empathy that Sonia had for others was unlike anything she'd ever seen before, and unlike anything that she has seen since. She said that her daughter loved those children, and she even saved every picture, card, and trinket that she was ever given. Sonia would eventually move on and work at South Lake Regional Health Center, which is in Newmarket, Ontario. I've said it before here on the show, but being a nurse takes a very special kind of person, and it appears for sure that Sonia was indeed that kind of person. In 2010, Sonia was living in a townhouse that she had purchased in Orangeville, Ontario. Orangeville was centrally located to all of the places that Sonia had to go. It was close enough to work in Newmarket, it was close to her parents in Bolton, and it was not far from Toronto. It seemed to everyone that Sonia was thriving. She had even taken on a new job, which she was very excited about. Sonia was going to be working for a pharmaceutical company. Her work life was seemingly where she wanted it to be, and so was her personal life. She did have a boyfriend at the time named Ian. He was a married man who she had been seeing off and on for a year or so. Prior to the horrible events that were about to take place in her life, things seemed to be in order for Sonia. Her mom has mentioned since that she felt like something was a bit off about Sonia. She was perhaps a little more stressed out than usual, But that could be attributed to the job change that was coming, or any number of things that take place in someone's day-to-day life. On Sunday, August 29th of 2010, Sonia would be at her parents' home, enjoying a meal with her parents and her siblings. Michelle said that while stressed, as Julie said, 
Sonia appeared to be very happy with how things were all coming together within her life. Her brother Viv would ask that day if Sonia wanted to head out on the lake with him on the jet ski, but Sonia said that she was going to head home so that she could continue to learn and work on her French, because her new job required her to be bilingual. That night, Sonia would give her mom a call, like Michelle said that she did every night, and leave a voicemail for her, asking if she could bake a cake for her friend that was coming for a visit. Michelle said that her daughter would call her every night, and that was a routine. Later, when she didn't hear from her daughter, that was one of the reasons that she knew something was wrong. That voicemail from Sonia would be the last time that her family would hear her voice. On Monday, August 30th of 2010, a call was made to the Orangeville Police Department to report a vehicle that had been abandoned in behind the town hall in downtown Orangeville. They were told that the car was very suspicious and needed attention immediately. Police arrived on the scene around 10 a.m. and found a white Toyota Corolla that had been abandoned in the very small laneway there. The trunk was wide open as were the doors of the vehicle. There were signs of blood on various spots on the car, but on the rear bumper, under the trunk, there was very evident smears of blood. Police obviously realized very quickly that they were dealing with much more than just an abandoned vehicle. The area was roped and blocked off, and the police began working on the car, believing that it could very well be a crime scene. One of the first things that police did, of course, was to run the plates on the vehicle. They found out that the Corolla was registered to Sonia Varashin. While this was going on, the family was already aware that something was wrong. They had been notified that Sonia had not arrived for her shift at the hospital that day. They knew that was not like Sonia whatsoever. Once they were notified that Sonia was not at work and they tried to reach her to no avail, they did not hesitate. They called the Orangeville police and reported Sonia as missing. Those two pieces of information told police that they were likely dealing with a situation that would be very time sensitive. They had a vehicle with blood on it and the person who the vehicle was registered to was now reported as missing by her family. They needed to find Sonia as soon as possible. You figure at that point you're looking at only a couple of possible options. You have blood, you have an abandoned vehicle, and you have a missing person. The Corolla was left abandoned very close to Sonia's home, so police headed to the home to see if they could find any answers. When they arrived at the home, however, things were starting to look worse and worse. Sonia was not at the home, and they found blood on the front door of the home and blood leading down the front steps from the door to the driveway. At this point, police started to spring into action. It was very clear that they were likely dealing with some kind of crime scene. They needed to find out what they were looking at and quickly, so they started to canvass the neighborhood looking for any witnesses or any evidence. Unfortunately, though, all of the door knocking and canvassing seemed to come up empty. Sonia's neighbor told police that she even had her windows open the previous night, but she hadn't heard anything at all that was out of the ordinary. Upon investigation, it was noted by police that there was no sign at all of forced entry into the home. As such, they believed that Sonia had either let someone willingly into her home, 
Or she had, the ve- at the very least, opened the door. The Orangeville police realized that they needed help in this case, and they contacted the Ontario Provincial Police, or OPP, to help them with this case. The joint police force would work hard over the next few days, looking everywhere near Sonia's home, near where the Corolla had been found, and everywhere in between. Police also opened a dedicated line for the public to call into regarding Sonia's case. The police used every means that they could to try and uncover evidence or find Sonia. They used police dogs, they used helicopters to fly overhead the area and forested areas nearby, and they had plenty of feet on the ground looking for any sign of what had happened or of Sonia. As we noted earlier, Sonia's family feared the worst at this point because she had the routine of calling home every day to speak with her mother, and they had not heard from her in a few days now. Everyone was starting to fear the absolute worst. In larger cities, it can be easy to sometimes hold back what the police are working on and what they are investigating. However, in a town like Orangeville, that was not the case. Word spread quickly that a young woman had disappeared, and small details of the case started to trickle out. To combat the hysteria that that would likely cause, Police Constable Jonathan Beckett from the OPP told the public that the police were working hard. He said, quote, We're going to leave no stone unturned. We have a specialized team of investigators who are on the scene, unquote. On September 3rd, after Sonia had been missing for five days, the police held a press conference to appeal to the public and try to drum up some sort of lead because they didn't have much to go on at this point. Detective Inspector Mark Pritchard would let the public know that they had found blood inside of and outside of the home of Sonia, and he said also that it was very apparent that whoever had committed this crime would have left the house covered in blood, based on what they had seen at the scene and in the car. He believed that blood would have been all over the culprit's clothing and footwear. He also said that the police were looking for a beige-fitted mattress and a matching comforter that were missing from the home and believed to have been used to help move the body from the home. Police were operating under the assumption that whoever was behind this crime They had used Sonia's vehicle to move the body, and then they had ditched the car behind the town hall. Police also believed that it was very likely that the culprit was familiar with Orangeville and with Sonia, but they obviously did not know if that meant that Sonia knew the culprit. Then, on September 5th, the worst was confirmed. A man who was walking his dog along a wooded area near Beach Grove Side Road and Mountain View Road in Caledon, Ontario, came across the body of a woman. Police confirmed that the remains were in fact those of Sonia. Caledon is approximately 25 kilometers away from Orangeville. It's interesting that her remains were located 25 kilometers away from her home, and then the car was driven back to Orangeville. That would lead me to believe that the culprit in this case was either from Orangeville or had their own vehicle in Orangeville and thus needed to get back to the town after getting rid of Sonia's body. The OPP would announce that Sonia's death was indeed a homicide. However, no other information was given from the police to the public. 
Information was, of course, being withheld to help police to infer if anyone that came forward was indeed telling the truth because details would not be widely known. The police did appeal to people from Caledon and Orangeville to come forward with any information that could help in the case, and they even offered a reward to the public to do so. Police would later release one other tidbit of information to the public, that being in regards to the footwear that they believed that the murderer had been wearing. Police believed that the killer had been wearing size 10 or 11 work boots from either Wind River or Dakota. The boots that they had narrowed their search down to were sold exclusively by Mark's Work Warehouse here in Canada. The unfortunate part of that is that Mark's Work Warehouse is a chain here in Canada with literally hundreds of stores. On September 8th, police would hold another press conference so that they could show the distinct pattern that the boots used in the murder had in hopes that someone would see those treads on the news and that would trigger some more information for them. Unfortunately, that was largely where the information to the public came to an end. And sadly, information was not just being withheld from the public. Sonia's family still, to this day, say that they have not been told what happened to their daughter. Many people were interviewed as potential people of interest in the case, including Ian, the married man that Sonia had been seeing off and on, but police were either not satisfied that anyone that they interviewed was a part of the case, or they did not have sufficient evidence to place charges. In December of 2010, police would let the public know that they had partnered with the FBI and their Behavioral Analysis Unit to try and create a criminal profile for the person that they were after in the case. It was believed that Sonia's killer was a man and that he was familiar with Orangeville and also the rural areas around the town. It is believed that the man would have shown a change in attitude and behavior after he killed Sonia, and that he would have started to act angry and irritated towards others. It was also believed that the suspect could have moved out of wherever they lived in the first weeks of September. Police were appealing for anyone that lived in or around Orangeville and perhaps knew someone like that to call them and let them know about that person or those people. Over the years, different avenues have been investigated, including a former boss at the health center that she worked at and had a reported issue with, and a group of young men who had previously rented a home a few doors down from Sonia. Those avenues did not provide police with more information that would lead them to the killer or killers, however. Police also noticed that Sonia had been communicating with many different men on the dating site Plenty of Fish. Unfortunately, all that seemed to do was widen the pool of suspects. Police would announce in 2011 that they had a DNA sample of the killer, but that they had not been able to make a match. Police would even take the strange move on May 24th of 2011 of asking for the public to voluntarily submit their DNA samples so that the police could disqualify people. As you can imagine, that was not met well by the public. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association would even come forward and say that the police were trying to convince the public to come forward and give up their privacy. Police in turn said that the DNA would only be used for this case and that the samples would be destroyed. 
Over the following 15 months, police would say that over 600 people submitted their DNA samples, but the case remained open and active. This tactic did not move police any closer to resolution on the case. On the third anniversary of Sonia's murder, police came forward with a $50,000 reward for any information that would help in leading to an arrest. On the four-year anniversary, surveillance video was released that showed two people in a gazebo near where Sonia's car had been abandoned, but it would be announced that the people from the video were located and cleared in the case. Now, 12 years later, there still has not been any resolution in the case. The police have said numerous times, though, that the case is still open and not cold, and that the case is still being investigated and leads are being followed. The family has tried to move on as much as you can expect is possible without resolution in this case. But it seems that even to this day, the family does not know what happened to Sonia any more than the public does. Her parents have moved out of the home that they lived in at the time, where the memories were just too hard for them to deal with. Sonia's siblings now have children that will never get a chance to know their aunt, and they have taken a young lady away from everyone that knew her. Twelve years is of course a long time that has passed, but if you had heard someone talk about this case and have information that you think may break the case, please, we appeal to you to come forward. If you do have any information that could help bring the case of Sonia's murder to a close, please reach out to the OPP at one 310 1122 or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or online with any information that you believe could be pertinent to closing this case and bringing this man to justice. There is also still a $50,000 reward for information that leads to any arrest. So if you're out there and you know anything that may help this case, even if you think that it isn't much, pick up your phone and make a call. And that is all that we have for this particular case. We want to get the word out on this one because, much like the police, we feel that this is one of those cases that can be solved. There's more than one person out there that knows what happened to Sonia. Make your calls to get this case closed and join us over on Patreon as we discuss this case and the ins and outs of it from our perspective. I know that I am baffled that people can do things like this and keep their mouths shut and live with something like this on their conscience. And aside from that, thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. We'll see you next time.